Welcome, everyone. This is the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Woodzik, and my pronouns are they, them, and theirs. This is episode 151 with Amber Scales. Amber is an incredible actor, but more than that, she is deeply involved in politics and communications. And what I love about this conversation is that she really breaks down actionable steps that every one of us can take to further our reach with our civic engagement. And I think that's more important now than ever in this current cultural moment. And so at a time where everything feels overwhelming and scary, just know that we can chunk it out make little bite-sized moves forward and really try to work to make this country and our little communities specifically a better place. So with that, please sit back, relax, and enjoy episode 151 with Amber Scales. So I am thrilled to welcome to the podcast amber scales is here hi amber welcome hi thanks for having me so we met uh while you were starring in colorado shakespeare festivals 12th night a few years ago um and i was understudying and so for a brief moment during the uh romeo and juliet understudy run through which was the hottest day i've ever experienced in my life oh my god uh, i played both your mother and your nurse and it was like 10 people will ever remember that in the history of the world. But uh, your life looks a bit different now. So for folks who don't know you, what's your introduction and what are you doing right now? How to wrap it all up. Um, well, first, you were the best nurse mom. Um, <laughs> let's reboot that RJ if anybody wants to see a real production. Boy, do we have a show. <laughs> How to tell the people who I am. I guess we should start with Amber Scales, she, her. I'm a Black woman. I identify first and foremost as a Black woman, a Southerner, a storyteller. I have a background in theater and performance, but also do social impact and politics. And I really believe that the way we tell stories can change the world. And that's sort of the core and ethos of who I am and what I do. But I have a bachelor's in public relations and just finished a master's in communication studies, both from the University of Alabama, Roll Tide, obligatory <laughs> moment. <laughs> um, but have a have a a love for arts and performing arts and especially the stage and the way uh it can it can really shape the world. Absolutely. So much yes anding on my face right now. And I was joking with you right before we started recording that theater is more political now than it's ever been and politics is more theatrical than it's ever been. Mm -hmm. So can you tell me a little bit about your time working with the Kennedy Center and how that affected you and propelled you to sort of pivot a bit into the more political sector? Yeah. So being in DC was such a wonderful experience. I had family who lives there, um, an aunt and some cousins. So I had always spent time there growing up. Um, my mom is in the legal field and does a uh, juvenile justice work. So the thought of being uh, called to community service and community leadership was something that was not outside of my you know, dining room table growing up. But it feels a lot different when you're in D.C., when you're sitting in the Capitol and there's sort of that buzz and energy. And when I was working at the Kennedy Center, it was a really exciting time. At the KC, they were just opening a new building, The Reach, which was all supposed to be about breaking down the barriers between art and audience members and sort of letting creation be a communal process and a site-specific process. And in uh, the social impact department, which is where I was working, I just got to see so many cool creatives and theater makers and artists come be in residency or work through projects. And it was so exciting and everything was perfect. And I was like, this is the best post-grad job I could have dreamed of. And then boom, COVID. <laughs> and we were all left as performers, as people in live events, as artists thinking, oh my goodness, what do we do now? And what was so clear in that time for me was that 
okay, I had minored in political science. I had um, spent a lot of time thinking about arts and advocacy and where it intersected, but I wasn't actively doing per se while I was at the Kennedy Center. I think a lot of what we were doing was uh, because our, our department was geared that way, but a lot of art wasn't. So I was scrambling to feel like I was doing something important in a time where we were in a, a national crisis and I felt like I had skills that could contribute to that, but wasn't really sure how. So I guess it, it started as most uh, ICCs did. I went home back to Georgia. My brother was home, my parents, and we were like, it was like being in high school all over again. It was a very strange <laughs> set of events, but I was really blessed to be able to like just hunker down and, and wait out the world a little bit. And while that was happening, I decided I didn't need to try to find... Um, a forever job, but I wanted to find something that felt important and impactful. And I saw a job that was a culture, media, and entertainment fellow at Fair Fight Action, which is a voting rights um, and advocacy organization in Georgia that was founded by the Stacey Abrams. And I thought, wow, if I was oh, making her. up, oh, you know, maybe you've heard of her. I said to myself, if there, if there was a time to work for one of my uh, heroes, perhaps uh, the time is now and the day is here. So I applied uh, and got the job and busted my butt through getting Biden elected um, and making sure Georgians could cast their votes and fighting for free and fair elections. But in a really fun, not theatrical per se, but a lot of what we did was around media engagement and using a, a, a civic series episodes called Civics for the Culture and just trying to talk to people. And it felt more like performance and art than I ever thought politics could. And I loved it. And I thought, well, maybe this there's something there's something in this that uh, we can dig into as a a community of people who care about the world because the people we make art with need us to care about policy, need us to care about laws. We are definitely folks who cannot afford to, oh, we don't talk about politics, anything at any time. Right. Do you, I'm just really intrigued by this because to me, the link between theater and politics is so clear. clear. Mm -hmm. But I would love for you to pull on that thread a little bit more about how I mean, did it feel like scene work, these one-on-one -on -one interactions with people? How do you mind pulling out, like, what are the intersections for you, especially in that work? Yeah, it, a lot of what we would call in politics organizing, that's cold calling people, that's knocking on folks' doors, canvassing, all of that really felt like community building. But I guess if I had to put it in theater terms, it, 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 it was that first day of school moment. We were all getting to know each other, right? When we're sitting down at table work and you hear someone read for the first time and you understand in their reading of their character, their perspective. And you think, oh, this is what Woodzik's nurse looks like, which is different from mine because they've felt this way or moved this way. And you can see it come out I mean, that's how policy really feels, that everyone isn't going to be moved by everything. But if you can find the, the moment that's going to really connect with someone, whether it's they really want to be able to take care of their children or maybe elder parents, or they really care about education, or they really need to be able to pay their bills and stay in their apartment and not have rent be sky high, or they want you know, their trans friend to be able to access healthcare, whatever their piece of the puzzle is, you don't have to sell them on the whole picture. And really, you don't have to sell them at all. You have to connect with them about something. So that bid for connection, which is all we're ever doing on stage and the listening, which is all we should ever be doing on stage is so, so key to creating good policy, to being a, a good advocate and to building political power. Absolutely. I, I got chills when you were talking about that. Like, honestly, honestly, oh. yeah, I, it's, I think it's one of the most important things that we can do with our time and our energy and most importantly, our skills, right? Mm -hmm. Like folks might not mm -hmm. think in theater that skills translate. They might think it's a completely different sector, but I was in a position in November where I sort of fell into <laughs> managing a campaign for a friend who was running for a house seat and I'm like, oh, this is this is production management. Mm -hmm. This is okay. I have someone from a county Democratic Party who's a really big personality. This is like 
handling an actor who's having a moment as a director. (laughs) There are so many parallels. And so I, I really hope that folks who are listening in the theater sector get galvanized, especially in front of 2024 and especially this current cultural moment that we're having with the drag bans and the anti LGBTQ legislation that has been, I think that what's really brought it home to me. And I would love to hear you speak on this is how important organizing is on the community level, like on very, you have, you see in states, like it's state by state, these bills are are going through and are being presented and how important it is this, those state representatives, which maybe we don't think about that mm-hmm. much. We're more thinking about national campaigns and that, but when folks are in power, then they have power. And so we can't really sleep on these smaller um these smaller races. So can you talk about that at all? Yeah. <laughs> you know more I mean, about this than yeah. I do. No, you you are a well-equipped citizen. And that's the thing. There isn't some like magical title we get after working on campaigns or being in the world that makes us better equipped. Like we too are concerned citizens who maybe make it more of our, our nine to five job, but civic engagement is everybody's job. Like we we can't have a democracy without engaged citizens. And I, I don't mean engaged in the quiet, easy way of I vote. Like that is such a bare minimum. Voting every year, great, wonderful. But the people you bring with you, the ways you show up and hold people accountable, like are you going to your school board meetings? Do you know who your state and local representatives are? Like those are the people all the way down the ballot that are really going to be a part of your life. I mean, the same way we can all be excited about Tony nominations, but are you supporting your local theater? Because your your community theater, your community politicians are going to be the people around you, next to you, close to you. And if you're not engaged and involved in what they're doing, then sure, what's happening on the national stage is, is important, but you're not going to run into the president, most likely. You're going to run into you know, your state reps, your school board reps, when you're out grocery shopping, when you're walking your dog, when you're at your park, when you're concerned about things happening in your neighborhood and being able to know them by name, being able to know what they're putting on the floor, what bills they're talking about, being well-versed in that stuff. It takes time. It's not always fun. It's not always interesting. Reading through it is sometimes gives, especially creatives and actors, that ick of like the world's falling apart and, oh my God, I can't do this. But we can't be overwhelmed by that sense of we got to do everything all at once. It's the next best step um, in, in making sure you have the information you need to at least, you know, talk to your friends and be like, have you heard about this? Is there something we can be doing? Because somebody knows, right? Like somebody is connected in a way to say, you know, I don't know what we can do about the drag ban or what we can do about this that's talking about uh, people and performance costumes and like, okay, but I do know we're about to do Twelfth Night. And what does that mean for Viola? And like, ooh, where, where is this going to go? There are people who are writing laws who have, who've never thought about it, you know, and they're putting things in place with agendas that aren't about safety, that aren't about any of that, that they're just anti-trans, like that. it's all it is. We can't dress it up as anything else, but we have to be able to be strategic enough to say, okay, well, what is something it would affect that doesn't feel as political or doesn't feel as big or different or new or scary as maybe all the people who don't personally know trans folks. But most people have seen a play, at least heard of a play. Like, yeah, if if we're not scared of Tyler Perry as Medea, why should we be scared of other things? You know, like we can find ways to make it make sense. And whether those ways are economical, like they are for a lot of Georgians, but most Georgians don't particularly care what we're putting on stage at at the Fox Theater. It's still sort of a a luxury to be able to go and see art like that. But they do care about the millions and millions of dollars that come into the state because people produce film, television, and theater here. And if we want to continue to make that happen, we can't have laws that say, well, when your women are in Georgia working, they won't have control over their reproductive rights. Or if people are on stage here, we have to worry about what costumes they're in. Or if trans folks are here, they can't get the care they need or be paid living wages. Like that can't be policy that we have if the state wants to continue to make that revenue. So I'm on a tangent now, but (laughs) it's it's the same thing if everyone has a way into it. And, you know, you don't have to be a bleeding heart 
I personally have friends and feel so angry or upset or hurt by what's happening to them or what's happening to my community. It can just be bad for your pocketbook. And whatever tale we have to tell, we can tell it. And performers, actors, stage managers, directors, uh, all those sorts of people are prepared to have that conversation because it's the backbone of so much of what we do is communicating. Absolutely. Speaking of communicating, can you tell me about working on Stacey Abrams' campaign? That is like just the coolest thing in the world to me. It was really cool. I think it's it's not uh, it's not lost on me just how cool it was. Like I I would go to work and be like a little bit in awe of her as our candidate, and so hopeful. Um, and I still am even with her losing that election, am so hopeful um, about the work we did and what's happening, which is a hard feeling to have. It, it's sort of like when you when you keep getting no's, you're auditioning, you're auditioning, you're auditioning, it's not happening. You think, okay, maybe, maybe I'll work in arts admin or something. And then it's, ah, well, you don't really have the experience we're looking for. And it, just the no's, the no's, the no's, but you, you have it in, in you, that resilience um, as an artist. And I, I think Dims in the Deep South and progressives in the Deep South are are a lot the same way, where we know the people are here, the work is good, and we will continue to do the work. And that's really what it solidified for me. The the way um, Stacy talks is not someone who is is providing lip service. This is a woman who is biting tooth and nail all day long. I mean, she put in the hours alongside all of us more so. And is so brilliant uh, and and well-versed and thoughtful around how she makes policy, about how she speaks to people, watching her interact with little girls who were just so excited about the thought of of having the first Black woman governor in American history, because it's literally never happened before. It was really awe-inspiring to get to do that work and cool to see how uh, the arts community and performers and you know like Lin-Manuel Miranda came down to stump for us and I planned his visit and I was like this is all of my worlds colliding I'm not (laughs) throwing away my shot this is it I mean I was really having a time um but it, it was really cool to see people pour into the state and not to see the same tired narratives about the south being paraded around like it was it's it is and remains really cool especially with Raphael Warnock getting reelected. And I'm still having two Dem senators that, you know, we we lost the governor's seat, but we didn't lose the state. And Georgia is purple. And there's a lot of good we'll be able to do, um, not only for my home, but for the whole country, like holding on to that. And that's because people showed up and did the work and had someone to believe in. But like that, Stacey's aren't like, they don't just magically appear, right? They're people who care and who who show up and say, I'm I'm going to do the first thing. And run for one thing and then run for the next and then run for the next. And then one day you wake up and it's sort of something you've dedicated your life to, but I guess that's, that's how it works for all of us, huh? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Sometimes you get those, you get all those hours of experience and you need to take a moment to realize that you have that experience. I feel like that's the, if there's any balm to uh, imposter syndrome, it's like, Mm -hmm finding that brain space to be like to pretend that you're looking at your own experience, the way that you would uplift a friend and type them for a job interview or something. Absolutely. Cause we are not always accurate at our own self-perception of our skills and how they translate to the greater good. And it's hard to be, I mean, we're, we're not trained to see ourselves in community that way to think about, okay, if, if I'm not, the right person for this? Do I know someone who is, or how can I find a person I believe in? Like that, that skill set to search either within ourselves and our own skill sets or ideas or interests or within our, our circles is, is not something anybody ever wakes up and says, you know, what's really important that we all <laughs> come together in collective care. And, you know, that's just like not, it can be if that's the way you've cultivated your friends and your life, but most people think, oh, it can never be me. I could never do it. And it's like, why not? You don't need to have it all figured out by yourself. Like we don't get up on stage and think I'm ready to do a play, just you, an actor. <laughs> like, we bring people into that. We we know that 
if so many people aren't here, we're in the dark and no one can hear us. And we didn't show up on time because we didn't know when our call time was. And our acting really wasn't that great because maybe we could have used some direction in this scene. And maybe we didn't do it safely because no one came and talked about intimacy or fight choreography. Like we understand in so many other realms so clearly that it takes a team of people and somehow it becomes this this God complex in politics that this person's going to save us. And it's never, it's never going to be that we're going to save ourselves every time. But that means we're all responsible to that work and to one another. Very well said for folks who maybe are, they're leaning in at this point in the podcast and we want to give them something actionable, right? Like something specific that they can do. What is your, you know, for folks who want to, uh, elevate themselves from the bare minimum of voting and like knowing mm-hmm. about stuff and turning out to vote every single time there's an election in their area. What are some, maybe let's give them a couple of baby steps, right? A very specific yeah. thing they can do to be more engaged and level up their civic engagement. Ooh, we love a level up. Uh, okay. So if we are already registered voters, we're showing up in every election, love that gold star. But then we have to remember voting is a tool. Right. So voting is going to improve our lives in really incremental ways. Who we vote for, obviously important. Who's in office, obviously important. But the things we can do past that are going to be who are advocacy organizations. So people who are not governmental actors, who are not um, bound by the same timelines, the same uses for their funds as people who are in elected office. And what are they doing to help in your issue area? So you have to sit down and say, what is the thing I care about? Do I care about trans youth? Do I care about education? Do I care about uh, having clean drinking water? Do I care about people having public parks? Do I care about, you know, my air quality? Do I care about animal rights? Like, what is my thing? And every you, we all can't, most of us can't <laughs> have the bandwidth to follow deeply or even meaningfully all the different things that are being attacked, all the different rights that are under attack. But if you decide, okay, reproductive justice is my thing, then you should find the organization. Typically, I would start with the organization run by Black folks, queer folks, trans folks. The most marginalized in your community is always a great place to start because the way they're thinking about policy is going to build from the ground up and build into equity um, and think about racial justice, inequality, and the way all of those intersectionalities make every issue uh, that we have feel different to people who are more marginalized than others, but get involved with them. Do they need volunteers? Or is the moral document of your income reflective of what you say you care about? Where are you donating? Either your time or your money, preferably both. Who are you following? Who are you amplifying? Do you get on your social media feed? and talk about white fragility. Okay, good. A good a good read. Great place to start. But maybe a white woman's take isn't the take or the only take. Perhaps we could read a couple other people. You know, just just I want us to all start being a little bit more critical, especially when we're in moments of national awakening. Like I think uh, along with COVID, with the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and countless other Black and brown people, we all woke up and decided, well, I won't say we all, uh, many people woke up and decided it was a good day to care. But the people they decided to learn from were not those with intersectional identities. They were not those who had been in the work of the work on the ground. They were not spending the time past reading the one book on Reese Witherspoon's book club to do a new thing. Um, and past that, weren't in community with anybody going through the types of issues they claim to care about. If you are really upset about homelessness in your community, but have never met or spoken to an unhoused person, it's it's not clicking, right? Like we wouldn't claim, oh, I love Shakespeare, but you've never read it. You've never seen it. You <laughs> can't tell me anything about it. Like the, politics is one of the only things where we allow people to say, I care, I care, I care. And they have no receipts about it. So I I would start thinking about your worldview, your circle, um, where you get your information from, who you uplift, and how you spend your time and your money, and making sure those things match up with the thing you claim to care about. And then that way, when you're in your circle, people know, oh, if I want to check in on what's happening with the housing crisis, or food deserts, or X, Y, or Z, 
I know that in my friends, this is the person who cares about that. The same way we all have, oh, we all have a, you know, the the fun vegan friend who can tell us, here's all the best vegan restaurants in town. And this one's Latinx owned and this one's black owned and this one's by a cute little lesbian couple and they make the best muffins. And this is the place, you know, like we should all become a little bit of an expert in the thing that we say sets our heart on fire about making the world a better place because we care. We all do. And we can't hold everything. Some things we all have to hold a little piece of equity and racial equity, especially in America is a big part of that. That's everybody's duty just because of the way this country was founded. And we can't we can't get away from race in America. But after you add the building blocks of those pieces to whatever it is you care about, you can take the next step after casting your ballot and before casting your ballot and in between casting your ballot because it's all wrapped around. I just like... I am like, I'm like, let's go, let's, let's go, let's go right now. I'm like very, very galvanized. And I think there's something to be said too. I think (laughs) this is an, this is a wonky parallel. I'm going to draw, you know, like I've taught acting one classes before and there's so many kids who will go on Google and just type in monologue. Right. And so we have this thing. For those of you who aren't communication nerds, so there's search engine optimization, right? Which basically means the ones that the sites that folks who folks have gone to the most will show up on top, unless there's a paid advertisement and that might show up on top. And so it's it's that thing of like not taking the first monologue, right? Don't click on that first link. Like the organizations that you're talking about may not have had the infrastructure or the privilege to put to get the top SEO, but hey, boy, howdy, if you go to the fourth page on the Google search, so to speak, you can find those folks. And to me, it's so much more rewarding than I feel sometimes when I donate to larger organizations, it really feels like a drop in the bucket. But when the more directly I'm able to use the financial privilege I have when I have it to directly affect folks who are really doing the work and on the street and are more of a scrappy grassroots thing. That just, it just feels like I'm spending the money, donating the money more wisely and it has a bigger impact. And I think for a lot of folks, it's a balance of when you have the privilege to donate money, like really be mindful of that. Like, absolutely. I mean, I think people who maybe haven't uh, been on the administrative side of it, maybe you've never worked in granting. So you don't, you don't understand that there are teams of people dedicated to getting large, big organizations that have multi-million dollar budgets, that money. Um, and that it, it comes from a lot of the times millionaires or billionaires or companies or corporations. And they don't have to have the same concern of if they don't have grassroots donors, they're not going to be able to complete their programming. But if what you really want is to see your money circulating in your community in an issue that you really care about, mutual aid, grassroots, smaller nonprofits, those are the places where not only is your donation going to really be felt, those are the ways you say, you know, on your little birthday Facebook post when you get to pick an org, that's who you pick, right? Like you pick someone that not only is it going to be helpful, but you can amplify it and make it a giving drive and find out if your employer will match your donations. Like there are so many ways to really make things community driven. Um, I, lo- I love a good, it's my birthday fundraiser. Like don't send me money, send it here. Um, but in times where where you're thinking, okay, this crisis is happening in this community and I want to help and I'm in a place to help right now. Cause I, I get it as performers. We are, we aren't always, a lot of us are in between paychecks too, which is why our time and our skill set can always be helpful. But if you have the money, putting it in the hands of the right people is so, 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 so critical. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to change gears a little bit and talk about as someone who sits at the intersections of different sectors, as you do, one of the things that I would really love your take on authenticity in the way that candidates Ooh. deliver messages. Because <laughs> I went to a picnic, a Democratic picnic in a neighboring county. Up, I'm in Wisconsin, which is a very interesting state politically because we have a Democratic governor, but both of the the state legislature is Republican controlled, and so there's a lot of back and forth and and uh how can yeah how do we hold both of those things in the same 
state, right? Mm-hmm. It's a very like it's a very interesting thing, and it's a I'm in northern Wisconsin, which is very is rural and very um, Republican politically. Mm-hmm. And going to this neighboring county, and we were listening to just a lot of candidates, and and I think a lot of them were for um, at that point they were narrowing down the candidates for the attorney general candidate. Mm-hmm wasn't attorney general oh state treasurer and Mm -hmm. some other things and to me i'm listening i had to hold two awarenesses in in watching these speeches right one of them was how effective is this person like just basic public speaking coming from a theater perspective and the other thing the other perspective was uh how effective in terms of policy and in terms of you know political clout and, and and who was really reaching the group that was there What's, I mean, what's your hot take? What's your mm-hmm. hot take? It's just, it's because that, it's to say that not, I would not cast many of the folks that I heard speak. Let's just say that, but I don't need to cast them. But I think that a lot of them could have, they would have been benefited by working with someone with a theatrical background. Absolutely. Take away. <laughs> I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah. I mean, as as a comms girly, a lot of what I do in in my arts and culture world is, always under some sort of hub of communication. Um, And public speaking is an art form, period. Rhetoric is an art form, period. And people don't always keep that in mind. I'm glad you said you were holding it in the front of your head because it's really easy, especially in American politics, which is so theatrical. It is so big. We make them debate against one another. And and is a debate the best way to learn somebody's platform? Absolutely not. It's the best way to see maybe how they might deal in crisis or how they look when someone is attacking them or how they can keep their calm or composure or what they look like maybe under stress. Uh, It's really the best way to know what their most succinct jabs and talking points are. If you want to know somebody's policy, you should read their policy agendas, which should exist. If you go looking for a policy agenda on somebody's website, on their social media, on whatever the candidate's materials are, and you cannot find anything that says policy, we're waving red flags. Spooky, spooky, (laughs) scary, scary. No, people should have policy in place uh, and, and have an idea of what their office can and cannot do, both legally, but also how they want to push the boundaries progressively. But for me, when I think about what is effective in an American politician in terms of public performance, public address, public speaking, rhetoric, it's not always the things we as theater goers, theater lovers, performers want to be effective. It's not grand Shakespearean monologues about people and power and once more into the breach, dear friends. It's short, it's quick, it's to people who have less than a fifth grade education because the majority of Americans are not going to college. Like that still is something that's rare and people don't have the time. People got bills to pay and politics is intentionally confusing. It was not created, our political systems were not created for everyday working people to understand what's going on. So the reason we can see a lot of really scary politicians being really effective is because they cut all of it out. They're not talking about policy. They're making people feel. And that feeling a lot of the times is fear, which is a great motivator, we know, psychologically, but it's not going to uh, sustainably run the country, right? Like, who is it? What was, is it Star Wars? To be feared, to be loved? It's in my head somewhere. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, it's such a good monologue. I can like see it being delivered. (laughs) doesn't matter. But people who, even on the other side, if we're thinking about like a President Obama who can sell you hope, who can sell you a dream and have a policy on top of it. But that's not what we think about when we think about him talking. We think about his cadence. We think about hope. And we're like, I kind of like him, which is another. um, It's something I get really hung up on because how much we like a politician, the do I want to have a beer with them test is something American politics uses a lot uh, when we're thinking about polls and likability, but that stuff's generally not going to work for women. It's surely not going to work for Black women, for people of color, for Black men, for 
Asian, Latinx, trans folks, like we can't use the same sort of palatability of are we nice? Are we charming? Are we well-spoken? Like those things are, are assumed. If we made it to this point, we have to be all of that. So how much are we a good public speaker isn't really what it's about. You have to make somebody want it as much as you want it, I think. And that's special. I, th- I think that's what I always saw in Stacey Abrams, that at the end of the day, she wanted it. And not for herself, not for power. She wanted it because she understood what the role of a governor is and what it could mean if the right person held the job. So the things she would talk about sometimes would get a little in the weeds because she's brilliant. <laughs> and I think uh, that's the thing we had to work on a bit of like, okay, let's make sure people can understand exactly what we're talking about here. But they were once in a generation opportunities because of the way government is set up and money flows but also everyday opportunities for people to feed their families and go to work with dignity and have control over their bodies and, you know, stuff that we shouldn't have to beg anybody for. And it's hard to think about how can people uh, speak meaningfully about those things without it feeling like, uh, you know, that's just political talk. Like, what can you actually do? But that's because the process itself is so convoluted. And sometimes we allow politicians to make us promises. And then we don't show up on our side to say, hey, remember that thing you told us? We want it and we haven't seen it. And then in a two-party system, it's hard to do that anyway, because a lot of times you can feel like, well, really, we don't have choices. We have A or B, which isn't really choice. It's sort of the illusion of choice. But the way the way we speak is so, it's so important. I I mean, I I spent a, a good bit of time in grad school looking at that, especially at how Black women candidates will have to play that game in order to get elected, to be likable, but also to feel powerful in their speeches and smart and this and that. And it's hard. But I mean, what I would really say to people who are trying to figure out is the same way you can tell when you're watching an actor in a movie or on stage, if you like them or if you don't like them, if you feel like they're phoning it in or you you feel like you're transported and they're just becoming that person and you understand that, you know, there's levels to it. Some people are great in every role all the time. Some people are better in this type of role or they play this type of part better. They're more of a comedian. They're, they're more of an ingenue. They're more of an action star. We could believe that, but maybe not this other thing when they try to do it. We all have that same, you know, BS meter in us. And when politicians are talking to us, if that's what's going on, listen to it. There's there's probably a reason something in you is like, I'm not buying this, even if you're not sure if the math adds up on the policy or if they can do the thing they're talking about doing. But anytime you get that tingle, look into it. There are plenty of, of, of mis and disinformation campaigns out there that are actively trying to make sure we don't understand what's going on and that are doing a really great job in convincing people of lies, of untruths intentionally to make sure American government cannot work well. And that that's a that's a heavy thing for us to have to deal with. But that's about how uh, the same way we have to think about how we're being engaged and where we're putting our money and time and energy, we have to think about our sources. Who are we learning from? How do we know it's true? And that sort of uh, media literacy, we're not taught either. No, no one thinks, okay, the first thing I'm looking at is sponsored. So don't use that one. <laughs> and the second thing I'm looking at isn't peer reviewed. So don't use that one. And everybody has thoughts and feelings about news and who is it coming from? And is it biased or unbiased? But you, we got to know the difference between this is an opinion piece. This is a letter to the editor and this is reporting. And there are journalists. We we still have journalists. Don't let anybody tell you journalism is dead in America. We have journalists, people whose job it is to impartially report facts to the public. That's what a journalist does, right? This isn't my opinion, my take. This isn't my talk show. This is a fact. And here are the sources. And those are the sorts of of people in places we have to be gathering information from. And then if we have people who we think we typically like their takes or think their takes are interesting, or they have commentary that allows us to think about the world in ways we wouldn't necessarily. I always like to hear um, disability advocates take on things because sometimes that's not a great place I can put my headspace in to think, oh, I thought this was really a good idea. But okay, our marriage equality law didn't think about disabled folks. And if they marry, they lose their benefits. Good. I have to know that because I can't thoughtfully make policy or think about policy or talk about intersectional identities without thinking about that community of people. But that's a thing you do after you feel like 
you have an understanding and you, you can articulate for yourself clearly in your own mind before you can listen to somebody else tell you what the truth is, which is really all it is. You can't go in waking, waiting for a politician to explain it to you. You really got to know a little bit before you show up. This is a direction that I didn't think at the beginning of this podcast I would go in, but especially in that last answer that you were, the, the last thing that you were talking about, it really emerged to me like the difference, <laughs> the parallels between theaters when they take on like a, an, uh, EDI department or mm. what the often the gap between the policy that's written on a website and then how it does or does not manifest itself within the work that that theater performing arts organization uh, does. And I was wondering if you would be willing to sort of, since mm. you've been in both types of organization, if you can speak to any parallels between that. Yeah, I feel like it used to lean a little bit more, right? Like before mm. everyone decided we all need land acknowledgements and racial equity and diversity and inclusion statements, they didn't have them, right? So the people who had them cared enough to have them, were progressive enough to have them, had gone out of their way to create those statements. Um, and now you can't really judge, oh, the work is being done just because you see those sorts of statements are present. For me, I look at leadership. I always look at leadership. If you claim to care so deeply about racial equity and diversity, but everybody on your board is a cis, straight, white, older, wealthy, <laughs> man, woman, mostly men, maybe we threw a couple women in the back. Like, I, I can't believe you, right? Your, your policy and your procedure and the lived experience don't make sense. Look at the seasons. What are they producing? What kind of art? You claim to care about these things. I don't see any new works being produced by playwrights of color. I don't see any work starring actors of color. I don't see anybody coming in to translate. Do you have materials available in Braille? Like, what's going on here? Are we spending the time? And it was sort of odd at the Kennedy Center because when it's such a big institution, there's going to be varying degrees to which departments care, right? So we in social impact um, under Mark Mamuthi Joseph cared a lot. It was a thing we, we really cared about. We wanted our programming to be communal programming. So we thought, okay, are we spending enough time with artists in the DMV and D.C., Maryland, Virginia, where there are specific artistic practices, where we are on native land and occupying it. Like, are we spending time with those sorts of people um, and making this their space primarily, in addition to being the nation's performing arts and cultural center? And I think uh, everybody didn't do that. You know, like that wasn't really going to be the National Symphony Orchestra's thing. It's not what they were going to care most about. You weren't necessarily going to see it reflected there. You may see it reflected a little bit more now, maybe a little bit more in the opera now. They've, they've been sort of working to do that. But if you looked at hip hop or jazz programming or social impact programming, it was going to look like a very different Kennedy Center than if you were looking at the orchestra and the opera. And that's not to say that those art forms belong to certain peoples and that there's not a place for Black and brown folks in those. There absolutely are. But institutions uh, are, are hard to change. And politics is the same way um, where people can thoughts and prayers you and lip service you all day. But if they're being funded by the NRA, you know where they stand. If their office always looks like the same cookie cutter postcard American beauties, you know where they stand. Like I, I have come to a place where I don't believe what you say. I believe what you do, because we can all hire a quick consultant to type up a diversity statement. It's not hard. You can get an AI to generate one for you if that's re really what you need and go on a land website and figure out uh, what native land you're occupying and make yourself a little statement and bibbidi bobbidi boop. But if you've been called out by We See You White American Theater and you haven't met any of their demands, I don't believe you. And that that BS meter, which is what I'm really generally talking about, um, is something you got to get in tune with, but also get curious about. But that that means you have to take the time before you buy the tickets to peek around and see what people are doing um, and who who folks are and 
decide where your personal line of if they are or are not doing these things, I will or will not be buying tickets, or maybe I'll buy tickets because I want to support these actors or make sure these working people can pay their bills, but I'm going to be writing a letter um, to an artistic director about it and demanding to see these things in their season. Like you can get organized around those things and the changes you want to see the same way you can politically about folks who claim to care, but don't do the work to care. You know, uh, love is a, it's a verb. You got to show up and do it. And allyship, right? (laughs) And it's not a title you can give yourself, right? Like you can't, I dub myself good ally. No. (laughs) If if that is the way you think you can call yourself one, again, I just don't believe it, right? Like I go on your Instagram and I can't find a black person. I don't believe it, right? You're not in community with anybody. And it works that way for uh, plenty of communities, but you you just got to, sometimes you got to do the work all the time. Not sometimes we got to do the work and expect others to do the work. I, I think we've gone a long time thinking stuff will just progressively get better. And we've watched it get very quickly, really worse. And that's been very scary for a lot of people, but the small things we do in organizations and in communities and artistically aren't that small, right? Like if we as artists and creatives can't do right by queer and trans and black and brown and indigenous folks, then like, and we claim to care, (laughs) then how can we expect whole swaths of people who have never claimed to care to do good work for those people and with those people in mind um, and by those folks who, you know, are are capable, but need to be given the chance, you know, if we're going to keep putting on white versions of Memphis and, you know, and like at local high schools and act like it's not a problem. Like it starts in so many small little pockets where folks are like, well, it just didn't matter, but it does. It does. It's an integrity thing. And it, it a hundred percent matters every time. Well said. I'm so excited for what's next for you. Like what, what opportunities are you looking for right now? And how can folks contact you if they want to support what's next in your career? I am most excited right now about the ways a lot of people are really intentionally putting arts and advocacy in the same room. I think we've started to understand that when politicians are talking to us or when people are yelling at us, it's not always easy to feel invited into a conversation, invited to a space of change. But somehow it might happen a little easier if we're at a poetry reading or sitting at a play or hearing the score of a musical and that art can really be a tool for social justice if we position it that way and use it that way. And it doesn't have to be that we can't ever do fun, silly, completely non-political musicals ever again, but um, the personal is always political. And if we are casting well and telling stories well, there's always going to be a narrative or a truth we can learn about people from making and producing good art. So to that end, it it should really be always what we're thinking about uh, and what we're striving to do. So I'm really excited about that. I'm hoping my next chapter will give me the opportunity to work on that type of artistic production that is specifically and intentionally political, not just accidentally so. And you can find me everywhere. Um, I'm on Instagram, Amber.Scales, um, on LinkedIn, on Twitter, all the places. I'm, I'm out and about in these uh, digital streets. <laughs> and we'll, we'll, we'll link to all those good places in the episode description. I, I have another fan person moment about your Instagram. Great seamless transition. Um. Did I see a picture of you and Carrie Washington on your Instagram? Uh, I mean, I really owe Stacy my life. In uh, addition to being my political hero and the best bosses, 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 boss I've ever had, um, you really can't be Audrey McDonald, Lin-Manuel Miranda, the Carrie Washington, Common, great hugger, by the way, Common, mm. and a theater man. Just yes, it's um. It's nice to see those sorts of people use their platform and and continue to care about what politics does. You know, it there are so many celebrities who are like, oh, politics aren't for me and won't get involved. But it's really a testament to who she is and how um, 
how exciting everything that's happening in the South is that so many people who even aren't from Georgia, um, a couple of whom who have worked here or done shows here, filmed here or whatever, but a lot of people whose whose connection to the state is their belief that the direction the South goes is the direction the country goes, which I really believe is true. Who wanted to show up? So you did see Carrie. That's my that's my good sense. If anybody wants to cast me in anything next to her, I'm ready. <laughs> we'll make it happen. It started here, y'all. It yeah, started- we'll manifest it, you and I together. All right. So as we wind down our time together, what is left unsaid? What what haven't we talked about that you want to talk about? Mm. We really covered it, but I I think the thing that feels uh sort of is tingling me in the back of my head of like make make sure it's clear, Amber, is that battling for your community is a fight, right? It's gonna take effort, it's gonna take um planning, it's gonna take strategy. But when we win together, I I don't think I can describe well enough the days on the campaign where I talked to someone who didn't think voting was going to do anything for them, were convinced um, that folks didn't care about their life, about what was happening to them, and really just wanted someone to show up, that when we do that, when we show up for one another it's so beautiful. And the the feeling that comes with doing that work consistently and getting to understand the bigger picture of what our country looks like and what our world can look like when we all continue to do our part is really hopeful, right? Like I, I do understand how scary this political moment feels and it's it's an important one, but we have everything we need to win. The numbers are there. The public opinion is there. Like most folks want common sense, good policy, right? Like most people don't particularly care about what their neighbors are doing in their personal life, be it with their bodies or with their reproductive organs or with their marriage equality. Like most people have decided Getting to pay their own bills is more important. We hear a lot about the people who are willing to reach their hands over into our homes and and take from us, because again, fear is such a narrative that we can peddle. But that's that's not that's not the full picture, right? Like that's not the full story. There are so many dedicated people and organizations who are on the ground in our communities doing the work. And if we show up and support them, we can and will continue to win political battles and elections, which will continue to push the country forward. We just got to show up for each other. I can't think of a better note to end this podcast on. So Amber, thank you so much for your time and just all the specific actionable things that you have gifted our listeners in this podcast. I think it's it's so important and it's um, it's lovely to have it be broken down into the actionable things we can all do to try to move the country forward. So thank you for your time, talents, and uh, you are absolutely one to watch. I cannot wait to see what you do next. Thanks, Woodson. Thank you for listening to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host and producer, Woodzik. This episode of the podcast was edited by C.J. Higgins and distributed by American Theatre Magazine. If you like what you heard, please like, share, and subscribe. Tune in each month for new interviews with artists and cultural trailblazers.